You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. joining us tonight. My name is Emily Rosen. I'm the manager of outreach for the Ivy Bookshop, uh, now located at 5928 Falls Road. Please come by. We have plenty of safe and socially distant browsing options for all your holiday shopping needs. So check out our website and Instagram for that. Um, I'm so excited tonight to hear about Ron Cassie's book, um, we have, I was telling him before this, that we have sold so many copies already at the Ivy and for, you know, being part of a place that really supports our community and really is proud of Baltimore and proud of the institutions that make Baltimore what they are, like the Pratt Library. Um, we're so excited to hear more about Ron's stories and his experiences and how this book came to be. So there is a link in the chat available for everyone who would like to purchase the book through the Ivy. You can pick it up at Burdenham, the Ivy, or have it shipped. So plenty of options for that. Um, thanks so much for tuning in. There you go. And now I'm going to turn it over to Tracy. Yeah, thank you so much, Emily. It's great to always work with the Ivy um, and really wonderful that things are going well with the new store opening um, and all the grounds that people can also explore while they're there. Um, so hi everyone, I am Tracy Diamond, the Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And before we officially start, I just have a couple things to tell you about happening at the Pratt. We have sidewalk service at 14 of our libraries, so you can still access sidewalk service and multiple mobile printing during the pandemic. Um, including tonight, we have an excellent slate of conversations over the next few weeks. Tomorrow night, Fraser Smith will be talking about his book, The Daily Miracle. Um, on Sunday afternoon, we have Stephen Leva and Evie Shockley reading for Cave Conum. And then on December 15th, Danielle Evans and Laura Vandenberg will be in conversation about Danielle's new book, The Office of Historical Corrections. Um, and of course, all virtually on Zoom. So we'll see you in this setting again. And details about everything I've mentioned can be found on prattlibrary.org. But for tonight, we're so thrilled to have Ron Cassie and Rafael Alvarez in conversation. So some logistics, if you are watching in Zoom, um, please click the chat bubble on your screen to post questions. Um, and if you're watching on Facebook, please post in the comments. I'll be monitoring both and um, you're the end of the program. I will come back on screen to help moderate uh, the Q&A. So post your questions and we'll get to as many as possible. Um, so Ron Cassie is a senior editor at Baltimore Magazine where he's won national awards for his coverage of the death of Freddie Gray sea level rise on the Eastern shore and the opioid epidemic in Hagerstown. His work has appeared as a notable selection in the best of American sports writing in collaboration with the Pulitzer Center at City Lab, Newsweek, Huffington Post, Grist, the New York Daily News, the Baltimore Sun and alternative weeklies like Baltimore City Paper, 
an urbanite where he served as editor-in-chief before coming to Baltimore. He teaches writing at Towson University and holds master's degrees from the Johns Hopkins University and Georgetown University, where he's pursuing a doctorate degree. Prior to becoming a full-time journalist, he spent almost two decades swinging a hammer, riding a bike, and pouring drinks for a living. Rafael Alvarez went to work for the Sun Papers of Baltimore as a teenager, first in the circulation department and then the horse racing desk in sports before landing on the city desk as a utility man and a neighborhood folklorist. He was with the Sun from 1977 through 2001. After leaving the paper, he worked on ships as a laborer before joining the staff of the HBO drama, The Wire. He's published dozen, dozens of books all about Baltimore. So like Emily said, don't forget to visit the Ivy's website to get your copy of, if you love Baltimore, it will love you back. It's so special to have a breath of Baltimore stories. Um, it brings back, especially during the pandemic, like for me reading it, it's bringing back so many memories of all the places to explore and the people you meet when you're out and about in Baltimore. Um, and Ron creates beautiful vignettes with ordinary intimate details, as well as a reminder of the heart and hope in our tough little city. And there are a couple of library stories, which were really fun to read. Um, and I won't tell you what page they're on, you'll have to find them. So please welcome Ron Cassie and Rafael Alvarez. Hey, thanks so much, Tracy. All right, you ready to do this, Ron? Uh, yeah, sure, man, let's go. Okay, so, um... I've often wondered if, you know, writers are born or made. I, I think storytellers are born and writers are made. I was curious to know what kind of stories got told around the kitchen table when you were growing up in the Cassie home. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think mostly it was like sports stories. You know, my grandfather saw, um, grew up in New York and, you know, you know some Italian immigrants saw Babe Ruth play and Lou Gehrig in the 1920s. I, I heard stories, and I've told you some of these, of uh, my, my grandpa, Frank, and his cousin, also Frankie, um, were pin setters at the bowling alley, saving their nickels to go to a Sunday doubleheader to see Babe Ruth play. And so when my grandfather's in his 80s and Camden Yards open, and he comes to Baltimore, I'm, I'm tending bar. You know, we, we walk down there to go see Yankees-Orioles game. And, and I already know Tony Lazari and, and Bob Hughes. I know the whole team, you know, just like my father, who grew up a, a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Um, I know the whole starting nine, Boys of Summer. I know Roy Campanella, Gil Hodges, Pee Wee Reese, Jackie Robinson, Ferrillo, Joe Black, um, Duke Smith, right? Like I, I knew these guys when I was nine and 10 years old. And uh, my uncle was a New York giant. This is the quintessential 1950s kitchen table, dis, you know, debates they had. And, and they came from, you know, when I was a kid, this is what I heard. Um, I'm really lucky that I grew up knowing a couple of my great grandparents who were Italian immigrants and, and my, my mother's parents were immigrants. And I was born, I'm the first in, in my family. Of course, my parents, people married younger then. My aunts in New Jersey and uncles lived back to back, like next door to each other. And in our apartment, my grandmother lived upstairs when I was little. So the stories I heard were like the neighborhood kind of stories that are familiar with Baltimore. I think one reason why you know, I feel so at home here was about you walk to the movie theater and a woman taking the ticket knew your name as a kid and you'd leave the house and, and you know, kind of like go down in the mud hole to ice skate. Um, 
this is true. And I know you're a baseball fan, Raphael, and you'll appreciate this. When I was a kid, and I mean like six years old, I would walk my older cousins to Rizzuta Berra Bowling. It was literally owned by Phil Rizzuta and Yogi Berra. And, um, you know, you're, we were like little kids. You just went and walked and did that stuff. And um, so those are the kind, those are really the stories, the neighborhood kind of stories. Um, you know, my mom talking about the priest that married them or something, the baseball stories, you know, which was as a, as a boy, you know, I love football and baseball. I was drawn to all those stories. So those kind of things. And do you re remember listening to these things and, and, and like almost seeing the stories in your head? Were you a kid of a, of a pretty vivid imagination? You know, I don't think so. I mean, I think this all, me becoming a writer has happened, you know, um, much later. I think, you know, at the time, um, I think I was always kind of a daydreamer kid. Like my mom would have to come look for me when I walked home, was walking home from school because I would get lost in my thoughts and stuff like that. Um, so there's an aspect of that. I don't, but I'm not sure what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I loved, uh, and I still do. I like being outside. You know, I liked, I like, I, could play ball 24 hours. You just changed the, the shape of the ball just changed, you know, from the time. And, but I think, you know, through, I think, you know, not to make it be, you know, try to make it too big of a deal, but I think sports is, there's stories built in, you know, there's, there's um, not just the personal stories, but, you know, there's a, you know, a, a first, second and third and fourth quarter, they're like acts in a play. There's a halftime, you know, the, you know the baseball games. There's um, there's a there's a story arc built in. So I think when I started writing, I was a sports writer. I did like reading bios. I mean, like Hammer and Hank of the Braves was probably the first book I read. Um, <laughs> and I read then as I got a little older, I read Boys of Summer and and you know the Legend Comes to Life, the Babe Ruth bio. Um, but I think that there was the, that when I started as a writer, like first I actually want before I started writing. And I was a bike messenger in DC. I, I, I started to paint and take pictures. And um, I won't show you any of my paintings, but it would be clear that I couldn't make a living as a painter. So I, I, I switched gears because I, I always could understand how a, a story was written. I'm not sure why, but that was kind of innate. I, I could read a newspaper and story and see the structure in it. Not like What newspaper did you read growing up? Like, did you oh, learn to read with the daily paper? Yeah, I mean, my, my, you know, none of my, you know, it's probably similar to your family, none of my grandparents, like, you know, my, they went to like eighth grade, but they read the newspaper every day, a couple. Yep. We got in New Jersey, we got like the Nutley Sun, the Newark Star Ledger, and then maybe, um, you know, somebody in the, around got it the New York Sunday Times even or something like that. So you got at least the Nutley Sun and the Newark Star <laughs> The Ledger Nutley Sun! Every day, you know, and um, Nutley was a little, you know, Italian enclave outside of new york um and now in town we got the morning call you know you get the yep, yep. weekend and you know my parents got like newsweek and time magazine in the house and um so that was always that was always around that that kind of journalism bent and reading the paper for sure and as a kid you know you know just like you know probably every american male of a certain age you, know, you grew up even as a kid with a bowl of cereal and the box scores you know, and um, so that was that was built in from the start, uh, for sure. I, I asked about the paper um, because, um, you know, I, I was lucky enough in 
uh, grade school that the Orioles were a dynasty back in the Brooks and Frank Robinson days. And uh, it was very exciting to, to, to read about it. You, you had to wait for scores. No one today knows what it's like to wait for a score. Yeah. Um, but the language of the sports page was different from the language of yeah. the stories we read in school. It was different from the, from the news articles. And um, I learned a lot of colorful language, some of it purple, you know, but that was okay. And um, I was wondering if the sports pages expanded your vocabulary in some way. Totally. You know, I, I did like a little social media thing this summer during COVID, um, a little Twitter feed about the Orioles and um, just because I couldn't watch the games every night. And I would joke with a friend that there's like 12 names for fly ball. You know, it's a can of corn, you know, it, 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 you know, it's a high fly. It's a, you know, it's, um, it's a line drive. It's a sinking line drive. It, it, it's hooking up. There's like, it's you know, a dying quail, the dying quail. There's a million, right? Exactly. So that kind of colorful language, absolutely. I absorbed and loved. And, um, and it was fun to go back and read the account. I mean, there's like 12 words for home run, dinger, clout, yeah. HR. I mean, it all, so there is a lot of colorful, fun language and it is much different than the rest of the newspaper you're allowed to have a little more fun and be a little more um, relaxed. And, and, um, and yeah, you, you know, when, when your team is doing well, man, you can't get enough. You'll read anything about it, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, I remember as far as stories go though, I'll tell you, I remember that Tommy Agee and Cleon Jones, this will be upsetting to people from Baltimore were two of my early boyhood idols. My, my cousin and I in the back well, in the street, we didn't have a backyard. Would throw pop ups. Would throw pop ups to each other. It was a dead end street, so no cars could come down. It was great, and you try to pretend to be Tommy Agee and Cleon Jones. And we knew that they had, were best friends as kids in Mobile, Alabama. Well, if they're best friends as kids in Mobile, Alabama, your dream is that you can play together in left and center field for the New York Mets. Okay, so since you had to bring that up, the yeah. the horror of horrors, the nineteen sixty nine World Series. It seems to me that Ron Swoboda should have a place in your fabulous new book. Do you, do you know the Ron Swoboda story? Well, yes, I do. And, and um, he's not in the book, unfortunately, but I did write a piece in the 50th anniversary of uh, the, um, the heartbreak that was 1969 in Baltimore. All the New York teams beat all the, all the Baltimore teams. And Swoboda is a, is a Sparrows Point kid who idolized Brooks Robinson and the Baltimore Colts. And it's Brooks Robinson's line drive that he makes a terrible decision uh, in, a, in like a tie baseball game, or maybe the Mets are up by one, to go diving in the gap for. Um, the smart play clearly would have been to field it on a hop. And he makes a spectacular, maybe the greatest catch in, in uh, Robs' boyhood idol. And um, I talked to Ron Sobot about this. And the funny thing he said is, you know, if you look at the, the, the NBC clip of that game and everything, Tommy Agee, their center fielder, is nowhere to be found. I mean, nowhere. Boog Powell would have scored even from first on that ball. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's switch gears here. And is there any food in your book? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know if there's a lot of food offhand. There's, there's, there's one, and um, I did. It's, it's called World Cafe. It's a story. I spent um, the Mira Kitchen folks, people may know in Baltimore. It's a, a nonprofit that um, is run by uh, refugee women in Baltimore. And, and where is it run? They serve at the JFX. They're partnering right now with Alma to open up a place on North Charles Street once we can go back to restaurants. 
but it's called Mira Kitchen. If people Google it, it's a great nonprofit. And so I went to um, one of the women's uh, refugees um, apartments over in, in um, Northeast Baltimore and she made eggplant for me, spicy pickled eggplant and I had lemonade. And, um, you know, hearing the story of her having to flee Syria, leaving family behind, how she came to the United States, how she spent her first Thanksgiving in Dundalk with neighbors um, and just wanted to cook for everybody. And, um, and you know, it's just one of those moments when you're at her kitchen table eating mm -hmm. eggplant, which as an Italian, I love. Um, you know, time just stops. You just like in the perfect, there's no one else in the world at that moment that I would rather be than Imam's kitchen table having pickled eggplant and lemonade and her telling me about Syria and her cooking and how she spent her first, you know, Thanksgiving in Dundalk and everything and her children. This just you know, wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world at that moment. Which brings me to um, an old newspaper cliche. You know, it, it the world of old school journalist, newspaper men and newspaper women was called sort of the life of kings. And what they meant was you had a front row seat to all the big ball games, all the Broadway shows, you know, you were uh, sort of a class unto yourself. Um, but in my experience, what you just described, pickled eggplant and lemonade. Now, wouldn't that be a great title for a short story? Pickled Eggplant and Lemonade. You're going to get the writer or the reader right there. Um, talk about the difference between entering into the lives of private people versus covering big events. Yeah, I think, you know, what, what you bring up is good. I think most people, when they start out in writing or journalism, are really excited to, to run into, um, interview a celebrity or a big shot politician or, or cover the Super Bowl. Um, but you know, the, the Super Bowl isn't more fun than, than a great high school football game on Thanksgiving Day, um, and it's no more fun. As much as I enjoy being like with Jim Palmer on his 50th anniversary of his time in Orioles, I, I don't really enjoy that more than, than than hanging out with Imam and being at our kitchen table. You know, I mean, it's about what you learn. You know, and and the you know, I think the stories that I like from the ground up. You know, people will will share their whole life story. They're not holding back. They don't have a reputation or anything to protect. They're, you know, the forthright and 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 you're just trying to learn about their lives and. Um, you know, to be, you know, this is one of the early stories in the book. I went when um, Sparrows Point was closed and just being sold off for parts. Um, there was uh, the company that was auctioning it off was offering tour bus guides of, to, to basically big industry representatives from around the world, China, Japan, the Midwest. And it was a cold January morning. And, and I just on a whim went over there to see if I could get on one of the buses. And I was, my hope was that I'd find, you know, an old steel worker maybe who wanted one last look at the place, you know, and I did. And, and I sat next to Lawrence Natural who went to work there at a high school in like 1963 from Kenwood. And he told me when, about when Bethlehem Steel had like 27 softball teams and, um, you know, how much of his life he spent there. And, you know, again, it's just, you just wouldn't want to be anywhere else, you know, in that, in that moment. And um, it's the same with like, you know, sitting in with, um, you, know, the, you know, Weasel at WTMD, for his show. <laughs> you know, like I, Weasel lives in Bethesda and he needs a ride back and forth to tape his shows. And it's called Weasel's Wagon Train, the group of volunteers that pick him up in Bethesda, drive him, tape his show and then drive him back. And so in order to get the times I needed with him, I volunteered, you know, 
I went and picked him up in Bethesda and drove him back. And then of after course. Show, drove him back. Cause I want to, I, he's one of the reasons I live in Baltimore. You know, like when I came in the early eighties, the city paper, WHFS Memorial stadium, I lived in Waverly. If it was a close ball game in the third inning, we'd walk over, you know, the first time I had Natty Bowes and Crabbe and walked to an Orioles game, like, you know, I'm not going back to Allentown, Pennsylvania, where we moved after that. Um, so those, you know, you know, and you know, I, some of the stories literally come because I ride my bike a lot. Joe, I came by where Billy, the block where Billy Holiday grew up on in Southeast Baltimore in Fells Point, and I saw an artist like putting a mosaic together. You know, he's on his knees with the everything and these broken plates. I just stopped and asked what he was doing. You know, and and that became that became this a, you know a story, and he and he told me about why he chose broken plates. Um, a beautiful mosaic, but the broken plates speak volumes about, you know, Billie Holiday life. I mean, she was raped on a, on a Christmas day in that block as a, as a girl. You know, it's not all roses, her story. Um, but it was not many roses at all, actually. No, it was a beautiful homage to her as an artist, you know, and, and at her as a her musical genius. And, um, you know, I, you know, I've gone out with street artists when they're doing wheat pasting and I've, and I've been, um, and these are most of the stories in the books, you know, and a woman named Kim Sheridan uh, started painting the victims of gun violence in the city. Um, she lives in a very, very modest pig town row house and to talk and she's visually impaired and to talk with her and, and listen to her actually just share the stories of why she paints victims of gun violence and the painting she doesn't sell. She gives to the, the victim's families. And, well, and as, as you that's know, that's Baltimore. That's Baltimore. And Liz is a very modest woman, very modest row house. And as you know, most of the people who, who, are, who are killed in Baltimore by gun violence are in the prime of their life or, should, or ought to be, right? They're young. And, and she paints these beautiful portraits and she reaches out to the families. And as I'm sitting there in this row house, Raphael, and she's showing me, and it, and it started from this like three-year-old child who was killed getting his first haircut in a barber chair by a stray bullet in Pigtown. As I'm sitting there, literally... <laughs> a mini blizzard of snow comes right down the street, like literally just out of nowhere saying to me, like, I hope you're paying attention right now. You know, that's how I felt like. And I just didn't really, whether it's driving the weasel back to Bethesda or being with Kim Sheridan, um, that's really to me what, what the book is about, what being a journalist is about. And I know you write these stories too. It's, it's, it's so fun to be at a, a, a big game or something. Um, you know, you just mentioned that this universe with the snowstorm pretty said, you know, I hope you're paying attention, but you're also a, a teacher. And I know that the fundamentals of writing can be taught like anything else. Um, how do you get your students to see? Because be, if you don't see the story, you can't write the story. And my experience over the years, helping younger people, even when I was you know, on the on the city desk at the Sun, and they'd often um, let a brand new reporter follow me around. It's almost impossible to teach someone how to see the story. What do you yeah, do? Yeah. What do you do? It's, you you really. It's funny you mention that because that's exactly the mission in teaching feature writing. Most of them have had like um, they've learned how to write a. Um, a pyramid story with the most important fact, the next most important fact, the next most a traditional new, newspaper story. 
and you're saying, no, no, you take the most compelling thing in the story and you put that right to the top. And you have to think about what the art is gonna be for this piece. Do you have a great photograph to go with it? And what's this story really about at its core? Somehow you have to work that out. And you know, I brought in um, Gina Perleone, who's a friend and, and, and is a portrait artist, a painter. She's a painter painter of a portrait. I, br I bring her in with her work to talk about how she paints portraits. You know, and we listen to podcasts and we do a, like, I try to do a million different things and we'll share with them the Kim Sheridan story, the weasel story and short, really short pieces um, that just get down to really vignettes, you know, and, and short pieces that try to crack the skull open to people to see, uh, you know, the, what the story is there. And I most eventually get it. You know, we talk about writing stories about people and place and, um, but some, you know, some already have it when they come into your class, and that's that's really a miracle. Um, yeah, and not necessarily the best writers. You know, some are not. I mean, you know, at Towson we get a really diverse, wide band. You get unbelievable students who are the first generation of college, and you get older people from West Baltimore. And it's not necessarily the best writer who sees the story. And there's story ideas that I want to steal. You know, <laughs> like from the students, they're just great. It's but, also it's never it's my experience is it's rarely the most talented that hangs in there long enough to actually become a writer. I, I think the prospect of, um, of limited income sends a lot of really good writers to law school. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the race is not always to the swiftest. No, that's a good point. I mean, I've been, you know, a full-time journalist for 15 years and, a lot of websites and newspapers and magazines have gone by the wayside, right? I mean, I basically started when all this was speeding up and the people that are still doing it, it's persistence, you know, it's just persistence. I don't think they can imagine doing anything else. That That's who has remained. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but since we are friends, I might as well put you on the spot. Uh, why does a guy with your talent feel he needs to get a doctorate? Oh, that's a good question. I don't need to get a doctorate. Um, <laughs> the, um, you know, I don't think. Um, what's your doctor going to be in? Uh, liberal studies. So. It's, oh, okay. So, what's the motivation uh, there? It's not. It's certainly not going to be remunerative. It's going to. It's going to be out of pocket expense. I mean, it's not. None of the degrees. I mean, I like to learn. And um, I went my master's program at, at Georgetown. I was covering religion for the Frederick News Post, and the Re National Religion Re News Association offered up four, offered up scholarship money for four classes. You could go anywhere you wanted. So I could have gone to like Hood College and um, or Fre nothing wrong with that, or, or, or Frederick Community College. You know, I just went to Georgetown. I just wanted to learn from like the best, and I just enjoyed these classes, literature and religion classes, so much. I just kept at it. News Post had a tuition reimbursement. I put some in my own pocket and um, I just learned so much. You know, read Marilyn Robinson and Alice McDermott, along with Thoreau and Everson and everybody else. You know, I didn't get my undergraduate degree until I was 41 years old. So there's a lot that I didn't do, read in the meantime there, and that I feel like I caught up with. And, and um, uh, you know, I felt really right at home. You know, I did really well in the program. Um, was named to like the you know, scholastic honor society and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I just learned so much. I just love it. And, and I just want to continue to learn. I find like 
by putting myself a little bit to the test, right? By having to write papers, to having to show up, by having to do, read the book when you've got a full-time job, maybe you're freelancing as well, but you've got to get through this, this novel, you've got to get through this work, you've got to write a paper about it. And the funny thing is, as a writer, I never imagined that I would write work so hard at writing something that one person was going to read. <laughs> and no money. Like I never, but I would, you know, work as hard as anything else. So it's just about the learning process. It's not about yeah, I didn't I didn't ask the question because of financial remuneration, yeah. but I would like to hear you. I mean, all great artists, writers among them, have to be naturally curious, whether it's the woman you brought in to your class as the painter. You know, you, you have to be curious about the world, which is a, yeah. a way of seeing the world. Um, yeah, which also can't be taught. I, I would think. And at least for me, um, you learn more in Amon's kitchen than you do at Georgetown. I mean, I, I obviously, there are two different ways of learning. Uh, there's nothing that you read at Georgetown you couldn't have gone to the Pratt on Cathedral Street and, and taken off the shelf. There, it, it seems like there's something about the, um, the credential that is important to you. Can, is that part of your working class background? I don't think so. I mean, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, a woman's, I, Monica, who, you know, bland, who I talked to the other day says like, Oh, I just read your bio. You have a lot of credentials. You wouldn't think it meeting you. <laughs> and I laugh, but I think it's a compliment, you know, like, I love I, it. I don't, I listen, there's a part of it is, is yeah. You know, I rode my bike from DC to Pittsburgh. I like climbing mountains that are there. And, and that's part of it mountain climbing am i going to pay the price and do this a big mountain i don't know can i do it will i get rejected i i don't know I, but i'm willing to put myself through the rigor of that you know i don't i think it's of course it's it's different learning of course you know yeah it's yeah. not well listen learning is a curiosity is a muscle you know like your compassion i mean you i mean you specifically as well as other people i know and empathy has expanded your 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 intelligence and your knowledge and your ability and your potential you know, I remember, um, you know, our, our good friend Dick Basoka talking about Elijah Cummings saying, you know, when he was a young lawyer, you never would have, Elijah Cummings gave you no indications he was going to be the man that you met, you know, after a decade or so in Congress, a national civil rights icon, you know, and, you know, uh, celebrated the Capitol Hill. And, and I think it's, you know, it's Elijah Cummings, just like his empathy and compassion for other people, you know, it expands, and that curiosity it just keeps expanding. And so, the Georgetown thing is like, you know, I'm willing to do like hard things and try and fail or whatever, take the risk, you know, I don't even yeah. know if I can afford it, you know, but like, I, I, if I'm not testing myself a little bit, then, you know, I get bored, I guess. I get rest. I was just curious as, you know, from one writer to another particular, yeah. you know. Um, Maybe a huge and, mistake. We should keep that in mind. Uh, are you prepared to read a little something for us, Ron? Uh, yeah, I can. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, let's see, something short, I suppose. Whatever you want. Okay. Um, well, I'll read you the one since we mentioned it about the Lady Day Way and Joe Rizza. This is from uh, 2013 South Durham Street, one of the beautiful alley streets in Baltimore. In a cramped upper Fells Point alley, Joe Rizza, T-shirt, jeans, and a gray O's cap 
sips from a can of beer and a foam cozy, studying a pile of broken tiles laid out in front of a cinder block wall. Within reach sits a metal cart with mortar, putty knives, grouting tools, and a hammer for breaking tiles and mirrored glass. I started this with white dinner plates, something I stole from my kitchen, says Rizzo with a smile. I'm sure people walking by wondered what the hell I was doing. Rizzo's mosaic of Billie Holiday in full voice, white plates representing the iconic gardenia she wore in her hair, stands steps from her childhood row house. The work, which portrays waves of sound morphing into bluebirds as the piece moves down the street, is part of a larger effort to memorialize Holiday in the neighborhood where she grew up. At Thurman Pratt Streets, there's a recently completed four-story mural of the singer. And there are plans to rename the block Lady Day Way. Not that life in Baltimore or, any, or elsewhere was a fairy tale for Holiday, born to a 13-year-old mother, raised largely by relatives and raped as a child here on Christmas Eve. None of the pieces have been cut. They're all broken. And I've stared at them for some times, thinking there's no way to make them fit says Riza, who lives around the corner. I've done drawing, painting, photography, and just started working in mosaic when this project came up, but it felt right. She was using that brokenness to make music, to escape, to fly. That's what she's doing right there. Well, I uh, often listen to Billie Holiday and one of the beauties of the internet um, is it seems like, you know, when, when, when I was a kid, you would always hear about these mysterious recordings. Like, you know, the most famous one would be Brian Wilson's uh, Smile Project. <laughs> and, you know, you'd always hear about stuff in the vaults. And in and, and this day and age, there's, man, they just clean out the vaults and throw it out there. You can find anything. And I found um, a live recording of Billie Holiday, uh, which speaks to one of these cherished parts of Baltimore that guys like you and I tend to romanticize, but you know, this is a, a hard town and people that had it maybe a little rougher than us would see otherwise. In the middle of the concert between songs, she says, and I wrote it down the minute I heard it, I got so sick of scrubbing those goddamn white marble steps I never want to go back. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny how guys like us can romanticize a city that for many people just, you know, brutalize them, uh, which is why yeah. I think, you know, there's so much of the African-American middle class doesn't look back once they make it over the line. No, I, I mean, I... I'll push back a little bit. I mean, I, I don't try to romanticize anything. I mean, I, I did, um, one of the stories in the book is walking around with James Reed, who, who built the Billy Holiday statue in, uh, that's in West Baltimore. And he told me a story, and he's in his 70s, not in great health, how hard it was to get the strange fruit panel up, that the city pushed against him. And it took decades to get that added, and how important it was to him. This was after Freddie Gray, and how it meant more than ever now, and how that you know, lynching to police brutality, to, to, to mass incarceration, to police brutality against young black men was a continuous line. And he told me that his mother, when he was young, he was in his seventies when I, when I met him, 
told him to keep his hands by his side, not to reach for anything or put anything in his pocket while he was in a store. And here's a guy who's 70 some years old telling me that it stuck with him that long, those words from his mother. So I, you know, I, I done stories with, you know, Dante Barksdale with Steve Streets after a vigil. I, I don't try to romanticize. I mean, I think, I think it, 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 sometimes it does a little bit, but I try to bring up the, I try to be clear and tell the truth about the painful life of a woman coming from North Carolina when oh, she yeah. was old to work in a factory. And after all the, you know, in Essex for World War II, and then after her five kids go to school, she's at the Westinghouse line for 20 years. You know, I, like you, I, I worked in a factory where we're windowless, where you're waiting for the clock to move to 10:15, so you'll get something out of the vending machine and, and, and you know, for a minute and, and not being, having a creative outlet for myself for 20 years doing that kind of work you know, makes you a little, um, you know, it's tough to live with when, you, when you're just grinding away day after day. You don't really have a, a way. So, so, so then let me I'm push back. Though by nature. Let me say that. I will say I'm an optimistic person by nature. And my love is for those people, not, and what they've been through and the resilience, not necessarily to romanticize it. Okay. Then um, I'm glad you said that because that puts a nice little spin on the title of the book. Oh, the title of the book is about this. That's what it's about. It's about bad things that happen in Baltimore, for real. And it's that people in Baltimore are there for each other when they do. It's not the promise that the good things aren't going to happen or it's Pollyannish. It's that, um, you know, the, there's a community spirit. And, that, and, the, and I mean, just look at the vigils go up after, after a homicide. Look at what Kim Sheridan does, you know. Um, look what Joe Rizzo does to honor the woman who was raped in the, in the alley around the corner where he lives. You know, um, the way you tell stories about people here and, and honor them with, and their dignity, you know, is really important. Yeah, but I think maybe the difference is when I use that word romanticize, um, because, I, you know, if, if you didn't romanticize it, why the hell would you live here? I mean, I know that sounds harsh, but, you know, I don't have a single cousin that lives in Baltimore City. I don't have a single relative but myself. <laughs> and and my whole family's from Baltimore City. I may uh, romanticize it simply because the ghosts of my ancestors walked these very streets. And I've compartmentalized Baltimore in a way as a very young reporter on the city desk. Um, I was, do, do you know what the phrase hearts and flowers means? A hearts and flowers assignment? Yeah. There'll be some horrific, horrific thing would happen. Yeah. And they'd put a more veteran police reporter, you know, I'm, I'm like 20 years old at this point. So they would put some guy, you know, maybe Fraser Smith, who was going to be uh, with the Pratt soon um, on the main story, the, the investigation story. And they would, they would send me to the house where someone had lost a loved one. Yeah. And uh, I'd have to talk my way in you know, where this horrible, and, and you learn funny things. You learn that in the higher uh, socioeconomic neighborhoods, you didn't get past the sidewalk. Right, exactly. You did not get past. Right. In fact, they would have right. some relative who was an attorney yeah. to meet you on the sidewalk yeah. and tell you to get lost. But in the neighborhoods that you're talking about yeah. and the ones that I love, yeah. you would sit down at the kitchen table and they'd offer you something to drink. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. That's so anyway. That's what I mean. That's, you know, it's about, you know, the, I wrote, you know, I've read, you've read so many stories. I wrote about the kid from Dundalk who, who won the Preakness, you know? Yeah, of course. Died of, died of addiction. Yeah. You know? 
And that's not a romanticized story. I mean, yeah, we're celebrating his, his greatest moment, but the life is, is told true, I think. And, um, you know, the, so that's what the title is about, that it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, my friend says, the scrappy city for scrappy people, you know, and it's the love that you get back. It's what Erica Bridgeford does for people with, with her um, uh, rituals where people have, she goes out to every place where somebody has been shot and does a, a spiritual ritual and, and, and prayer for them. Um, it's amazing, you know, to go along with, and, and it, so that's that's what the thing is about. I, listen, I, you know, as you know, I live in a row house right by Patterson Park, and I, 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 you know, I wouldn't choose the Amalfi Coast, you know, preferably. I would visit the Amalfi Coast. I might spend a couple of years there, but I would come back to Baltimore. It's my spiritual home. I, I joke about that. I grew up elsewhere. I wasn't born here, but it's my spiritual home. I, it's endlessly interesting to me. I was going to ask you what you find. Yeah, well, my joke about it is it's like being in a dysfunctional domestic abuse relationship. You know, Baltimore keeps punching you in the face and I still come back for more because I love it. Um, right, you can, and you can break, you know, if you, I, I joke about this too. You know, I, went, I, I had a friend who was on a, on a Fulbright in, in Stockholm. I went to visit, you know, like we all, all our friends did for a couple of weeks. There's nothing I could I could do in Stockholm. Everybody is is taller, better looking. They speak better English along with other languages. It's perfectly clean, sparkling. And you come back to Baltimore, and I'm at an acupuncture clinic I'm at Penn North for for addicts writing a story. It's like you know maybe I can be of some little service in this place, you know. And if you if you if you want to be a friends of Patterson Park, somebody will hand you a broom, you know. And yes. Start. Yeah. And that's why I mean um, about you love Baltimore. It will love you back. It's only oh, I get it. I spent five years know, in Hollywood. It's, it's the cracks are where the light comes in. That's right. That's right. Um, so how hard do you have to lobby to get some of these hard truths into a publication like Baltimore Magazine? Um, well, this, this, these, you know, these were done a little bit sneakily because I, I, they started off as the, the chatter, which was like three short pieces with no photograph like less than on one page, they were like 285 to 300 words. So rather than doing like a celebrity sighting or going to some new restaurant, I started going to see Kim Sheridan and, and I'd write a story about, you know, I'd go to West Baltimore with, with Nether, or I'd go to the sneaker show, I'd go to a basketball tournament at the Dome in East Baltimore, I'd do stuff like that. And, and they would work. And Basoko loved them, you know, because he recognized they were, and he helped, helped me understand that he was fundamentally not just about people, but about place, about Baltimore. Yes. And people would say that to him. They'd say, you know, I've moved here and I've learned more about Baltimore through those things than anything else. And then I moved, we moved it to the back page and got a photograph. It's called You Are Here Now. And, um, you know, there are, this is, I don't think, this is not about me. It's just the same kind of things you'd write, but they're like the most read thing in the magazine, you know, um, you know, month in and month out, the, the little stories about Roy Campanella playing for the Baltimore Elite Giants or something, you know, the anniversary of them winning a couple titles. Um, so there's, it's a kind of like narrative archaeology um, that, that is fun. The, the push, the, the, hard, the hard things that get done, and I think this is at any small paper and small magazine, and people don't think we're a small magazine, but the, the editorial staff is small is actually having the commitment and the time to do the stories that you want to do. You know, it's very hard to do. I just did a um, 5,000 word investigative piece on the iron pipeline, how guns get into Baltimore, right? Two thirds of the guns come from out of state. That level of commitment and time to put into a single story, that's what's, that's what's really hard to do. Um, 
not so much these kind of, I, I think vignettes, even the tough vignettes, I think it's the longer deep dives into what the tougher parts of the city are about that, you know, and if, listen, if, if people don't read it, there's no, no benefit. You've, you've wasted a lot of time and resources. Well, even even uh, when the sun was still a very, very powerful and, and well employed uh, all the way through the 90s, um, you would still have to sometimes make an argument to spend that much time on something. Um, and we had a lot of reporters. So I, I guess also, you know, there's a, a, some pressure on you that if you say, I want this time, <laughs> um, or you have to take a lot of your own time, you, you sort of have to come back with a big fish, right? You, you, if you go yeah. fishing, you've got to catch something. You do. And, and, and fortunately, we've some of these long investigative pieces, deep dives, you have know, won national awards and stuff. And so you get some capital and people read them and invite you on BAL or WIPR to talk about them or TV, which is nice for the magazine. It expands our scope a little bit. It pushes the boundaries of what we do, which I think is, is great. People responded to but um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I joke and, um, you know, that uh, the story about Hagerstown, about the, uh, the crushing opioid epidemic, I mean, the idea was Hagerstown is very similar demographically to West Baltimore, except for the color of people's skins, you know, you know really grinding poverty, high addiction rates, high, enormous percentage of kids on free lunch and all, all those things, completely deindustrialized city. And it's not Frederick where it's a bedroom community of DC. But that story was pitched because um, you know, Dick, especially Pasoka, our, our then president, wanted another story about opioid addiction. It was the news. And I said, okay. But secretly in my mind, I know I'm writing a story about Hagerstown. Yes, the opioid addiction now seems to be like the death knell and the crushing things. But it's really about a deindustrialized community. It could have been East Baltimore. It could have been Dundalk. It could have been Glen Burnie. It could have been- Why wasn't it? What, what was Hagerstown doing in Baltimore Magazine? Well, I mean- it, you know, we have readers in York, Pennsylvania. We have readers in Silver Spring, Hagerstown, Eastern Shore. We have readers all across the state. We're the only city regional um, in the state. So we, we can cast a wide net. We can write about Ocean City. Um, Ocean City is Baltimore, huh? For Christ's right, well, sake. Well, Hagerstown used to have a minor league Orioles team. These people used to drive <laughs> out there for the outlets. You know, it's 75 miles. Part of the connection is there's a real connection with the drugs between Hagerstown. You know, the heroin highway thing is real. Yeah, and a lot of truckers out there. A lot of truckers, a lot of, and so a lot of people from, from Appalachia, Western, West Virginia, you know, came to Baltimore, have those roots. Um, so um, a lot of the dancers on the block back, going back totally, when the block totally. were started. all West Virginia girls. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to push out and do a story about like sea level rise, you know, it's going to basically flood two thirds of Dorchester County. Um, you have to tell it personally. You have to tell it with human stories. You have you can't just present statistic. That's that's boring. It doesn't resonate. You know, find that narrative story and and yeah, you really have got to pay the price ultimately. Um, you know, to bring something home that's worthwhile. Otherwise, what's the point? You know. So we got about ten minutes left. Um, what would you like to talk about, Ron? Throw something out there. <laughs> um, I don't know. Do we have questions? Should we get to those. I think we had a couple questions, but it seems like you answered them already. Uh, Dennis Visco, who I am Facebook friends with, said he's uh, Italian from Manhattan and never heard of pickle eggplant parm. I think he missed the fact that the cook was from Syria. Yeah. Um, no parm, by the way. Just pickled eggplant. Oh, yeah. No parm. <laughs> Just pickled eggplant. 
He says, I was born in the Bronx, but when I discovered Baltimore, I thought there was just something about it that you feel or you don't. I actually totally love it here and I'm not sure I can explain it. Now that's interesting because it's our job to explain it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the jobs as, as a writer, you know, is, and I think, I think, I think you do this. And you know, there's a quote you have, I'll just, you know, about there's always a better story buried beneath the Royal Farm that's going up. And I think part of it, and, and I think um, the romanticizing of uh, the organ grinders and the monkeys and the accordion players in Little Italy and everything, I mean, part of that is to remember what's lost when everything is plowed under in the name of progress, you know? Um, and, and the stuff that matters, you know, it's important as writers and artists and poets and stuff to remind people of that, you know, um, places like, you know, Greek town and Little Italy, you know, are walkable, bikeable neighborhoods, right? They weren't called that back in the day, you know, but this is what people want, you know, is, is, is a neighborhood that has all that kind of convenience and that closeness, people want that closeness. My well, it was walkable back in the day because not everybody had a car. Right, but there's also two groceries, two butchers, you know, there was, you know, the, you know, the bar, a couple of barber shops. It was all right there, you know. My, yep. And I think it's maybe a little similar to your family. My parents actually left Nutley, right, when I was like 11 years old. And we moved to um, the suburbs of Allentown, Pennsylvania, as much as there's suburbs of Allentown, Pennsylvania. Um, and I, and I always wondered, like I did, as, a, as far as being a storyteller, I always wondered like, well, why did we go to a place where you have to drive to the mall or something like that? Or you have to take a bus to school. I'd walked to school ever since I was in kindergarten and um, walked to Rizzuto Barra Bowling. And I think people talk so fondly at this time. Part of it, I think, is whether it's investigative pieces or, or these vignettes is to remind people the, the value of, of neighborhoods and, and, and what's important. And, and people's stories that get you know plowed under like in the name of um, you know progress, right? Like like the road to nowhere in West Baltimore destroying Rosemont. Um, you know these kind of facts work their way into my stories. You know that um, when I'm out with Nether uh, the street artist and he's weed pasting on a block where there's like sixteen border palaces and there's families with children living in in two others and that's the block. The rest, all of the black X on them that are abandoned. And you learn about how Rosemont and West Baltimore was devastated for this urban highway to nowhere. Or I write in my book about, um, you know, I spent a couple of days with the, the squeegee kids down on President Street, just sitting in the median strip, grassy knoll there, hanging out with them. Um, you know, they're from Douglas Homes, right at the end of 83, you know, another urban expressway um, built to ferry people in and out of the city. Um, and so, so partly for me, the, the stories are, are to, you know, connect the dots a little bit too sometimes between, um, um, you know, what does um, your buddy Faulkner say? Is that the past isn't past, it's not even dead? Um, the past isn't dead, it's not even the past. That's, that's it. The yeah, my good old buddy, Bill Faulkner. Yes, the part of it is that idea. It's not just romanticizing, it's, it's remembering, you know, for a purpose, you know, how things got to be the way they are today. You know, it didn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, things don't unfold by, by accident. Somebody's making plans, somebody's making money, somebody's building stuff and, and demolishing old stuff. And uh, yeah, somebody's making money and somebody, yeah, and they're making money at the expense of community more times than not. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, there's a, somebody I, I read somewhere was talking about how you, what you can tell what's valued by society for what's the tallest building. And it used to be like the church steeple, right? 
And then, yeah. it became, then it became like city hall. And now it's like insurance and banking buildings. And it speaks volumes about the change of, you know, I know the churches like that we love in St. Southeast Baltimore, Holy Rosary and St. Casimir, St. Leo, all these unbelievable churches that somehow immigrants scraped pennies to build. And, yeah, hold and on a second right there. Just hold on. Yes, pennies from old Polish ladies in Fells Point for St. Stanislaus, which now is a yoga studio. Somebody should be uh, getting very acquainted with Dante Alighieri's Rings of Gehenna right now for that one. Um, exactly. Listen, uh, I just got a message here from Tracy that wants you to talk about the wheel at the Pratt Library. The wheel, yeah. So I, I got assigned for Baltimore Magazine when I was a, still a freelancer to, to go behind the scenes at, at the Pratt Library where um, things like where they have like the, a lock of Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe's hair kept in a safe and one of Tupac Shakur's um, prize-winning poems he wrote when he went to, um, to, to school around the corner. And it's all like their book binding and the gluing and everything that they do. And they also had this enormous thing. It was like Christmas tree shape, but it seemed to me to be about 12 or 14 feet tall and four desks like north, south, east, and west around it um, with human beings sitting there. And every reference book, as well as other books, stacked up on this thing. And these people fielded phone calls all day long from people who wanted to know if Pluto was a planet or not. And if... Um, and not just a Disney character. Right. And, you know, what was... Um, you know, uh, you know, what was, what was, what was Tolstoy's, you know, first uh, short story or, or all kinds of things, you know, what year was City College, blah, 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 like, and the phone would ring and, and people would answer it. And sometimes they could look things up on their computer, which they had by the time I'd gotten there. But other times they went to the, the wheel, which was handy. And they'd spin it around. So they got to the, and there was National Geographic and there was maps, just old school maps of what things were, you know, Baltimore, like in 1786, you know, some hand-drawn map. And um, uh, I wish that, I, I wish it was, I don't think it's still there. Exactly. Stuff they just pulled out. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So. It was called the Pratt Reference Desk. It was called, well, you have a story about it, I think. Yeah, I'll tell a quick one. It's 7.57. So in my years working the night shift on the city desk at Calvert Street, which is no longer a newspaper on Calvert Street talking about what was there um, is always makes for a better story. Uh, Pre-internet, we would get calls uh, from Baltimore families. And this is what I love, the devotion of families in the city trying to do better for their kids with a real lack of resources that are taken for granted in the county. I get calls from mothers saying, would you help Junior with his homework? And, uh, or as I uh, sometimes tell the story, the, you could hear the mother in the background urging Junior, who was somewhat reluctant to ask for help with his homework. And I would always, uh, if, if, if it was a slow night, I would help. Um, but I'd always send him to the Pratt reference desk. You know, I, uh, and, it's funny the numbers you still remember. And I couldn't tell you um, my wife's cell phone number because I'd look her up on the phone and, and just hit her name. Yeah. But City Hall switchboard is 396 3100. And the lady would say, 
well, how do I get to the Pratt Reference Desk? I said, just call 396-3100 and ask for Pratt Library Headquarters. And, uh, and here's the beautiful part. And maybe you could use this to take us out, Ron. They would thank you. And they would thank you like you had given them a precious gift. Tell me the kind of thank yous you've gotten when you have memorialized both the joy and the pain of what it is to be alive in the city of Baltimore. Yeah, that's that's a great story. That's an example of if you love Baltimore, love you back. You know, people are calling Raphael, right? Calling you at the city desk. You're a young guy, and you're you're picking up and giving spending time to, to give them some helpful information, and they're giving you real sincere thanks. You know, I think, you know, for me, my, you know, my experience is like, I these stories are important to me as, as if I'm writing about, if I was writing about Joe Biden right now, you know, they're not, they're more important to me than that, you know, and to get, get to, get to understand their stories, lives. And, you know, I think the first time we met, I think you asked me about my entire life story, you know, <laughs> you gotta know the whole world and somebody's whole story to be able to tell even just a little bit of it accurately to really nail it down. You really have to understand all of it. And when I, you know, sometimes I write about a story, you know, people have a way of looking back in their life and, and figuring out their own story along the way. And the, and the nice thing is, is when people tell you they hadn't thought about something or that, um, you know, they learned something talking to you, to me, not that I've given them ex advice that, or anything like that, just from the experience and the questions you ask, they learn something about themselves a little bit. And um, yeah, the sincere thanks. And when people post things and, and, and send you a letter and, and, and it's, you know, it means the, it means the world. And um, you know, um, you know, God forbid you get something wrong in a story, you know, it, it just kills you. It just kills you. And um, you want to get embarrassing it. too. It's embarrassing. <laughs> but you want to get, and I think people, you know, I do know what it's like to work in a factory. I know what it's like to swing a hammer when it's 25 degrees outside all day or to ride a bike for, to make $3 off the delivery. And, um, you know, I, 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 I think that comes across a little bit that I, I really want, I, I, I want people to, you know, are, you know, the, to make that connect. I want to make that connection with people myself. And, and I, and I think it's, it is wonderful. The response to the book, I'll say that too, has really been, been wonderful. I never, you know, beyond anything I, I expected. So what's next, Ron, before we say goodbye, <laughs> we got to have another book. Yeah, well, I do. I, I've got, I've got, a, I've got another Baltimore book. It's funny when you said a contract for one. I won't tell you what it's, what it's about. But it is funny that you said you, in the intro. Uh, I don't know how many books you've written, but they're all about Baltimore. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's the greatest. every single you know, one. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think you know. The other thing I'll just say is, you know, by spending time, you really become like a better writer. You know, in one place, I wouldn't be as good. Uh, I wouldn't know Baltimore as well unless I spent. The time here. You can't just parachute in and do these stories. You know, the first time you go to cover a crime in Baltimore, in West Baltimore, or something like that, it should not be the first time you're in that neighborhood. You know, when you're writing it, when yeah. you're writing Tuffy's, that should not be the first time you're there. You should go to the Shake and Bake. You should go to the Avenue Bakery. You should you should go see Billy Holiday's statue and talk to people and and get around a little bit before you just you know go in and, 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 and after somebody's been killed or something, try to start asking their family members questions, you know? And, and when um, I was a young reporter, I always felt that I was getting paid to, to learn about, you know, the single, you know, uh, the single subject of my life's work. 
and I'll say this too, he's like, I am not reflective in the way of the sense that I understand, I'm capable of understanding myself from within. I only learn about myself, my own life kind of through other people, you know, that are by talking to them and everything and hearing their life story and, and, and what they're about, I, I tend to learn a little bit about something about uh, myself, my family um, along the way and, and, and uh, you know, a little bit about what, like, what it's like to be a human being through this process as well, which is really, really fortunate, really, really fortunate. Well, um, sort of knowing what it's like to hustle books, I would like to tell everyone that books make an excellent Christmas gift an excellent Hanukkah gift, an excellent Kwanzaa gift, and uh, go over to the Ivy, which is a local treasure, for sure a local treasure. Uh, many of you know they've moved from uh, Falls and Lake to their new location. Um, and uh, I've also found that, that people like sending Baltimore books to relatives and friends that have left Baltimore and miss crabs and miss the Orioles and miss Old Bay and, and, and stuff like that. Um, so I'd like to congratulate you, Ron, on your first book. Uh, and I'd like to encourage everyone to go buy it. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Raphael. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, everybody, for this. Yeah, thank you both so much. I mean, learning from both of you tonight um, and taking these stories going forward and yes, getting your gift um, if you love Baltimore, it will love you back is just, I think, a great way to move into 2021. So thank you both again. And of course, thank you everyone for joining us um, in Zoom and on Facebook. Thank you to the Ivy for being a treasure as well, like Raphael said. And thank you to the Hearing and Speech Agency for the signing. So have a wonderful evening, everyone. Thank you. Good night. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.